Hey guys, welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast, where it's our mission to help you find and follow Jesus. Today's message is from our brand new collection of sermons that will go through the book of Revelation. And it's our hope that uh, you will be inspired and encouraged by the truth of God's word today. So here's Pastor Paul, and let's get right into the message. You know, the Apostle John, the writer of the book of Revelation, was now into his 90s when he received this vision from the Lord. And the vision that he received to him, especially in these first couple of chapters, was an in-depth look at the local churches there in the area. He called them the seven churches of Asia. God mentioned them. And it gives us an in-depth look to not only what was happening from an external viewpoint of these churches, but also what was going on inside and and in-depth. And of course, what we've seen so far is God began to uh, reveal some things that have been good. He's also revealed some things that were corrective about those churches. And today we're also going to just going to continue along in that march as God writes these letters to the seven churches of Asia. Now, last week we looked at the church in Ephesus and church in Ephesus was an amazing church. It was a church that was known uh, by its good works. It was a church that was known for their sacrifice and their labor for the Lord. Uh, they were also known for their patience and their strong stance against evil teachers and people that would try to bring false doctrine in the church. And really anyone who would just stand for what we would consider to be evil today. And they had a strong stand against them. But there was one thing, if you remember, there was one thing that Jesus mentioned about that church, one thing that he had against them. And that one thing was that they had left their first love. They had left the the foundations. They had left the one thing that had driven them, that had motivated them to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. They had become a church that was doing um, all of the right things. I, I think we could consider them maybe a very professional church. I think they were a church that uh, that everything from the outside seemed like it was going well, but they were doing it from the wrong motivations. Or I think we could also understand that maybe they were just doing it out of a force of habit. They had developed, they were a 35, 40-year-old church at this point, and it just was sort of the thing that they did. But the problem was, and it's the same problem that applies to me and applies to you or to any church, is that if we leave those first things, if we leave those things that God uh, has revealed to us that are the core foundation, is the motivation motivation for what we do. If we leave those things, we're headed for some trouble. That's why Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, you need to return to your first love. If you remember that from last week, uh, Jesus wanted them to remember from where they came, to repent of that, to return to it, and then repeat again the first works that he had called them here, uh, called them to. So here's where we are today though. The church of Ephesus had left their first love and we know that God was calling them to return to what they should be doing. But here's the question. So what if you do return to your first love? What if you do return to that position where uh, you're walking with Jesus as you should and uh, you are uh, uh, experiencing a rekindling of your passion and your love for him? If that happens, what can you expect from uh, the world? What can you expect from the world at that point? Can you expect applause from the world? Can you expect the world to uh, give you some congratulations Uh, Can you uh, expect the world to give you a pat on the back and maybe a word of affirmation? If you're walking with Jesus, you know, your coworker is going to say, man, great job working with Jesus. I'm glad that you're walking with them. You're doing a great job there. Is that what we can expect? Actually, the truth is no, we, we can't expect that, can we? In fact, what we can expect is persecution, persecution. Here's the reality of life is that real love will always cost something, 
Real love will always cost something. When you truly love someone, there will always be some suffering involved. Uh, If any harm comes to somebody that you love greatly, guess what? You hurt for them and with them. If somebody is attacked uh, that you love, you are defensive for them. If someone is taken away from you, uh, uh, you mourn uh, deeply when they're taken away from you. And that's the result of love. Love will cost you. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Uh, Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. Your heart will, uh, heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. You know, here's this thing, church family. If you love Jesus and if you let that know, be known, you will certainly pay a price. If your love for Jesus is, is at a point where uh, people understand that and they can see you from an outward expression that you love Jesus Christ in a special way, they will attack you and they will go after you for no other reason except the fact that you love and live out your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus predicted this in John chapter 15, verses 8 through 19, where he said, if the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Listen, for the Christian who loves the the Lord more than this world, that is what is going to play out. And this is exactly what we see happening to the church in Smyrna there in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 today. We see a church, a, a group of people, people that follow Christ because of their great love for him, they experienced a lot of persecution. Let's talk about the city of Smyrna just for a moment here. Well, the city of Smyrna, as you can see in the map here of the seven churches, uh, you can tell that uh, along, the, along the line here, we had Ephesus first, and then just heading north from there is the city of Smyrna. Again, the Isle of Patmos would be down, way down below there. But there is the city of Smyrna, and you can tell already just by looking at it that it surrounded a, a harbor. Now, Smyrna was one of the most beautiful and wealthy cities of that time and in that region. Uh, It was uh, surrounded a harbor, like I mentioned, and here's an illustration of kind of what that would look like here. Uh, You can can see that there on uh, on the TV. Maybe you can't see it on the TV. All right. We can't see it on the TV. Can you go to the next slide? There we go. That's what we're looking for. So you can kind of see there um, that there is this beautiful city. It's surrounding uh, the harbor there. And uh, it, it was a beautiful, beautiful place. In fact, where this depiction is taken from is from a road that ran along the Acropolis, which is on the very top of the city, the high point of the city. Think, think North Van, uh, kind of going up the hill there. And uh, there was this beautiful road that went along the top all the way around. It had trees and flowers, and you could see it from pretty much anywhere in the city. And it was a beautiful, beautiful place. All throughout the city, of course, there was temples. Uh, There were temples to Zeus. There was temples to Apollo, uh, to Aphrodite, to uh, others as well. And then very uniquely about the city of Smyrna, what we see is that there was actually temples to the Roman empire itself. There were temples there to the Roman emperors. Now, Smyrna was a self-governing Roman colony. It was known very specifically for their worship of Caesar and promoting the worship of Caesar as Lord. As well, the city was very much a proud city. They called themselves the first city of Asia, meaning, uh, yes, they believe it was founded far before many other cities, but at the same time, they were so proud of it, they thought it was the best city in the whole region. Now, we as Vancouverites totally understand that because we could say today, We live in the best city in all of Canada. 
for sure. In fact, we could probably say we live in the best city in North America or in most of the world. And we say that uh, a little bit proudly, of course. But that's what those people there who lived in Smyrna, that's how they felt about the city. Very proud about it. Uh, it was full of wealth. Of course, it was a shipping port. As well, it hit one of the land trade routes. And so a lot of business was taking place. And it was an amazing place. And honestly, when I look at these kind of depictions, I think, man, I want to go. I'd love to see what it was like. I'd love to uh, experience it in that time. But here's an interesting thing about Smyrna is that the word Smyrna actually means myrrh. Now, you might be familiar with that word from other places in the Bible. Now, myrrh was a, a gum-like substance. It was very bitter if you were to uh, try to ingest it. Very, very bitter. But they would use it, and they could, they could create other things with it, and they would create perfumes uh, for the living, as well as embalming uh, fluids and perfumes to cover up the stench of bodies that were dying. But at its core, myrrh was understood as a very bitter, bitter substance, you say, well, why is that important? Well, here's why it's important. For Smyrna, the Christians in Smyrna, though they lived in a beautiful, wonderful place, the life that they were living, in fact, was very bitter. It was very difficult. Bitter is probably what accurately depicts the Christian's condition there because despite the beauty of the city and the amazing surroundings and the wealth that was available to them, the Christians underwent persecution and it was extremely harsh, extremely harsh. So as we get into our study, I want to just, first of all, point number one today, you can just write down very quickly, persecuted, write down that word persecuted. The church was persecuted. Look at verse number eight with me of Revelation two. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these sayings saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Verse nine, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried and ye shall have tribulation 10 days. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. I don't know if you picked it up there in those verses, but the Christians in Smyrna were in a very difficult situation. And really one of the main reasons they were in such a difficult situation and persecuted so much was because of the local government's commitment to paganism and emperor worship. Now it goes without saying that the Christians would have refused that. They would have not have followed paganism. We know that. But at the same time, they also resisted the worship of the Roman Empire, which was a big deal to that city. See, the citizens of Smyrna, they willingly offered their worship to Emperor Domitian. And by the way, Emperor Domitian demanded that of everyone. He was one of the first ones that required that his subjects declare that Caesar is Lord. And though the Christians there would have willingly submitted, like Romans 13, to the emperor's civil authority, the Christians there would have refused to declare Caesar as their Lord. And because of that refusal, what would have happened is that it would have branded them as rebels, as troublemakers, and they would have faced the anger of the local government as well as the people of the local government. And so that's why it says there at the beginning, Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know the pressure that you're under, the difficulty that you are facing where you are uh, right there in Smyrna. But Jesus also mentioned their poverty. Did you notice that? He said, I noticed your poverty as well. Now to me, I read that and I think, okay, 
I understand, you know, some pressure, some difficulties, but why is it that they would be suffering poverty? I mean, they're in a very wealthy city. There's got to be, you know, jobs out there somewhere, uh, making minimum wage. Uh, But this word poverty here means literally destitute, without anything, homeless, like having nothing at all to their name. So why is it that they, these Christians here, would be considered in that dire of a financial situation? Well, again, it goes back to the history again. See, in Greek-run cities like Smyrna, with that Greek history and foundation, much of their labor was organized around cults of worship. Now, for us today, it's kind of hard to understand because there is so much separation from people's faith and their places of work. But uh, basically, you have to imagine that there were all of these guilds that were built up. And so depending on how you grew up or what you were trained in, you were part of a guild. So you're maybe in the uh, arts uh, guild or you're in the metalwork guild or woodcraft, whatever it was that you did. Um, you would be part of a guild. And along with being part of that guild, you would be subject to uh, their own gods. They had gods for each of the different guilds and you would have to be a part of that. And uh, you would have to worship that deity. You'd have special holidays and certain gifts and sacrifices that you would have to make just to be a part of that job. I mean, some of you are part of a union. Can you imagine having that kind of union uh, requirements on your on your life that you had to sur- uh, surround uh, your life around the worship of this? And so when a person became a Christian, and when they came out and said, listen, I, you know, I cannot worship this false God any longer. What would happen is that you would be cut off from that fraternity. You would be cut off from that guild, those people that you worked with. And that meant unemployment. That meant poverty. That meant slavery for many, whether it was uh, forced slavery or whether it was indentured servitude where they turned them over. By the way, much of the Roman empire, we know a vast percentage of the Roman empire was in slavery of some sort where they would turn themselves over in slavery and they would have then a home and a place to live. It still was not a great thing to be in, but many of them might've been slaves as well because of their decision to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's not unlike what happened to the Jews in Germany leading up to the real difficult aspects of the war. You know, during the rise of Hitler, it began with uh, the Jews there or with the the Germans there beginning to refuse to frequent Jewish-owned businesses. Uh, later on, then the Gestapo came in, of course, and they would write, like in this picture here, they would write and spray paint uh, Jude on there or Jew, or they would spray paint the um, Star of David on their businesses. And it was a warning to potential customers to stay away. Later on, we know the Jews were forced to wear armbands uh, that identified them as enemies of the state, of course. And then later on, we see how their businesses would be vandalized and looted Ultimately, it ended up in them being rounded up and placed in concentration camps, but they lost everything because of their identity. Now, the Smyrna Christians, they would have been the same way. They would have experienced that loss of of business. Imagine if you were a believer in Smyrna and you had to go to uh, the head of your guild and say, I can no longer participate in these sacrifices. I can no longer declare uh, when I come to work that Caesar is Lord. I can no, no longer declare that. And for them to say, I can't, you know, and for them to say, then you're not getting our business anymore. You can't work here anymore. No one is going to hire you anymore. And in fact, not only are we not going to hire you, but we're also going to report you to the authorities. As a result, poverty, tribulation, difficulty descended on the Christian community right there in the middle of a prosperous city. Adding to that, 
You say, could it get worse? Yes, it can get worse. Adding to that, there was a large Jewish community that was there in the city. Now, the Jews, as we know, they were sort of a recognized religion within Rome. They were uh, accepted by Rome. And so they did not have to cooperate with a lot of the pagan things that took place. And as we know, the Jews were very much against uh, any Christians, regardless of what city they were in. We experienced that all throughout the book of Acts. And so on top of what was happening from the citizens there in Smyrna, not the Jews that were there that you would think we'd have some sort of a brotherhood or connection, they hated the gospel. And so they also brought persecution to them. They were used. Now we saw in Acts how Satan used the Jews to attack the furtherance of the gospel. And the same thing was happening here. In fact, if you saw in the verse there, God defined their synagogue as a synagogue of Satan. Imagine that, that they were being used in, in that way. Notice in verse number 10 again, that, uh, that the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that the, ye may be tried and ye shall have tribulation 10 days. There was another aspect of it, and that was Satan was involved in the tribulation. He was involved in the persecution. He was uh, working somehow behind the scenes to see uh, Christians uh, imprisoned and then have difficulty. It says 10 days, and that's kind of a, it's interesting, you know, it just says just 10 days. Well, you say, well, that's not that bad. Well, 10 has a bit of a significance for severity, a severe trial. It it says that it will be a short one, but it'll be a severe trial. There's actually other instances in scripture where it talks about that. But the thing that we understand here is that the church in Smyrna was a persecuted church. They're a persecuted church. Now, when I read these things, sometimes what I say to myself is I'm glad I didn't live back in those days. I'm glad maybe you say that, man, I'm sure glad I didn't live in the book of Acts. But the truth is in our present day church, there are thousands of Smyrna's all around the world. I don't know if you realize this or not, but there are thousands of people every single year Men, women, children who are still to this day being persecuted, imprisoned, tortured, raped, beaten, sold into slavery, and killed because of their loyalty in the name of Jesus Christ. It's been estimated that since the early church, uh, since the early church around this time here in Smyrna, there are countless millions of people that have been persecuted and many millions that have given up their life for the cause of Jesus Christ. Currently, 2019 was the most serious, uh, uh, serious year on record as far as persecution goes. And they estimate some 90,000 people lost their life because of their faith, their, specifically their Christian faith in 2019. They estimate just under a million people lost their lives from the year 2010 to 2020. Violent persecution of God's people has not stopped. It continues even to this day. That's why scripture was so clear when it said in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. They shall suffer persecution. That is a promise from the word of God. Now, that's not a promise that we uh, usually claim, is it? Uh, We like to hold claim to promises of provision and protection. I wonder when was the last time you said, God, you you promised in your word that I was going to suffer persecution and I'm just here. I'm waiting for it. When's that persecution going to come? I don't think that you do that. Uh, We don't pray pray that. We don't want to be persecuted. Nobody wants to be persecuted. The the Christians in Smyrna, uh, they didn't want that. We don't want that. But here's the thing. If you live a godly life, notice. That's the key definer there. If you live a godly life, you will suffer persecution. It does not say if you're obnoxious, you'll suffer persecution. If you're a jerk to people, you'll suffer persecution. If you go out of your way to cause trouble, you'll suffer persecution. No, if you live godly, godly, you will suffer persecution in some form or another. Now, 
most of us, I think we could agree, have not suffered persecution like this. I don't know that you've had your job taken away from you because of your faith, or I don't think any of you that I know of have been publicly beaten for your faith or imprisoned for your faith, but I do know this. I know that some of you have lost friendships because of your faith. I know that some of you uh, have had family that you hold dear, have turned their backs on you. Others have had coworkers disassociate with you or others have uh, blocked you on social media or somehow cut you out of their life or events that, uh, that, that you used to participate in. And, and sure, that's a taste of maybe what is to come if the Lord um, holds off on his return. But the question is, is persecution is going to come. Are you willing to stand for the Lord when it does come? The thing about the church here in Smyrna Interestingly enough, God has nothing negative to say about this church. Every other church, he has something negative to say. This church, he has nothing negative to say. And I believe it was because they were truly living godly. And because they lived godly, they suffered persecution. You know, if you're having a hard time answering the question, will I stand up for Christ when persecution comes? Now, I think all Christians have thought this through. I know I've had moments in my life where I decide, okay, if it comes, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond? What will it take for me to take a stand? I think we've experienced that uh, even in recent history, asking the question, what is it going to take for me and as a church to stand up for what we believe in? And I recognize that sometimes as Christians, and I've talked with many that have said to me, well, pastor, I don't know that I would stand up. I don't know that I can stand up. And I, I recognize it's scary to consider the thought of real persecution and real suffering for the church here in Canada. I recognize that we have uh, experienced probably the longest time frame of freedom that Christianity has ever experienced in its 2000 year history. What we are in right now, I think that's probably the longest amount that we've ever experienced. But the fact remains this church, the same God who is with the church in Smyrna under intense pressure is the same God who is with us today. And so while we look back at the church and we say, wow, they were persecuted, I want you to also see that though they were persecuted, point number two today, they were not abandoned. They were not abandoned. I want you to get that. They were persecuted, but they were not abandoned by God. Now here's the incredible conclusion for our time today. I'm gonna take a few minutes here on this. Even though the church was suffering, even though their struggle was real and legitimate, God reminded them that they would need to get through it and that he would walk with them through it and it brings tremendous comfort to our hearts today. I wanna to look back at Revelation chapter two, verses eight through nine. Notice there at the end of verse number eight, he says, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And then notice in verse nine, he says, I know, I know thy works. I know thy tribulation. I know your poverty. And then he says here, a strange phrase, he says, but thou art rich. Couple of interesting thoughts here. This is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you're going through a difficult time. You're, you're struggling here, definitely. It's a lot of persecution. It's challenging. But Jesus is saying here, but remember who I am. Remember who I am. He's saying, I am the eternal one. I am the one who always has been. And even though you live in a city that says we were the first city, we're the best city, Jesus says, I am the first. I am also the last. I was uh, dead, but now I'm alive. I have the power over death. And, he said, and he's trying to remind them of the fact that, listen, remember who you believe in. 
Remember who it is that you've placed your faith and your trust in. It's not some uh, dead prophet from the past. You are in, you're trusting in the, the living Savior. You're trusting in God himself, the one who created the earth. And for you today, uh, listen, that's who we're trusting in, the first and the last. And then what I love so much is how he says that you are rich. He says you're, you, you have poverty, but you are rich. What does that mean? That means that you have a richness of spiritual blessings. That's what he's talking about. I know when they read that, you are in poverty, but you're rich. They would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. He's talking about the spiritual richness that they have in the eternal Savior. Now think about that. That's amazing thought. Here's what we need to know, church. Jesus knows about our suffering. Jesus knows about our suffering. I love that phrase at the very beginning there where he says, I know. Now, what does that mean? We learned that last week. What that means is that it's a complete and a full understanding. It also implies to us that Jesus not only has a full understanding of what we're going through, but he himself has also walked through it. Jesus himself has also gone through it as well. He's saying, you're hurting, I'm hurting. You're suffering, I have suffered too. It is so helpful in life when you have somebody that you can go to in a time of pain, a time of difficulty, who knows what you are going through. You can probably put that in the chat and put an amen in the chat since I can't hear any of you today. Put an amen in there and say, yes, that's, that is a wonderful thing. It's great to have friends and family in your life that are empathetic to your situation, but it's a whole different thing entirely when someone has walked through the fire that you are walking through right now. I'm not saying the person is going through at the same time as you. That's tough. A lot of times you just discourage each other. But having someone in your life who has been through what you've been through and can come along and say, I know what you're going through. So many times in life, we don't reach out to people who've been through difficulties. We don't reach out to people who have suffered like we have. It can be such an encouragement and a help to us. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's coming along and he's saying, I know what you're going through. And that can be a tremendous comfort to us. You know, did you know it's actually a scriptural principle, this process of comforting those in this way. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm just going to read verses three through four. It says, blessed be God, even the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So he identifies God as the God of all comfort. Then he says in verse four, who comforted us in all our tribulation. Why? That we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. You see that there. He's saying the trouble that we have and the trouble that we go in, God brings us through it so that we can go and help somebody else in that same way. Jesus does not give uh, the believers there in Smyrna some long drawn out message or some hype, you know, uh, peace and like, you can do it. Come on. He doesn't do that at all. What does he say? He simply says something that is so significant. He says, I know. I can relate. I understand what it is that you're going through. And because of that, that can give us tremendous encouragement and help. Another area that God gives to us that indicates to us that we are not alone is that he encourages us that it won't last forever. Persecution and suffering will not last forever. This is a way for us to be encouraged, by the way. God knows and he tells us here that though it feels like suffering may endure for a lifetime, it is just for a moment. It is, uh, it is just for a short time. There is a beginning, there is a middle, and there is an end to your suffering. So often when we're in a time of difficulty or a season of challenge, we're like, where is the end to this, God? Why don't you show me where it is? He says here, there is an end to it. And we see it again in verse number 10 where he talks about how the devil is going to cast some of you into prison. And then he says, you'll have tribulation 
10 days, be thou faithful. Notice he says, fear none of those things and be thou faithful. There's a time limit on it. Here's what I see in this verse right here is that when we're going through uh, troubling times, when, when we are, are suffering and we're saying, God, would you just get me out of this? God says, I know your situation. My grace is enough for you. I am eternal. I am in control. There is an end to this. Stay strong. Stay faithful. Continue on. It will not last forever. He says there is an end date to your suffering. There is a, an end to what you're going through right now. It may be more than 10 days, but here's what I want you to know. God is watching the clock. <laughs> He knows when it will end. There is a limit to your trial. And even if you don't experience it here on this earth, ultimately there is an end to all trials and all sorrow and all suffering that is coming to those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. See, Satan thought he was making progress here, but Jesus knew what was gonna happen. And you know what? God knows what is happening in your season of suffering and your difficulty as well. It will not last forever. Jesus knows what we're going through and so he encourages us to do not fear and stay faithful. Thirdly, there we see, do not fear and stay faithful. And there in verse number 10, I'll remind you, he said, fear none of those things, right? He said, be faithful unto death and I'll give thee a crown of life. Now, what we expect is not found here. I know whenever I see God says, do not fear, what I expect to follow is like, I'm gonna take care of it all. I'm gonna destroy Smyrna or you know, I'm gonna rescue you from this. We don't see that. We see God say, do not fear, there is more coming. <laughs> You see that? Do not fear uh, of those things which you shall suffer, meaning things that are going to happen. Do not fear, there is more to come. And at this point, I'm sure the believers, when they got this, were saying, well, how much longer, Lord? How, how much more do I have to go through? Maybe that's what you're saying. How much longer do I have to go through this pressure and this difficulty, the church there, uh, the poverty and the slander and the attacks? And God says simply, fear not, be faithful. I am with you. See, in life, you may suffer, you may be deprived, you may feel the pressure of persecution, but no matter what it is that you are facing, God says, do not fear, do not fear. Do not tremble, do not hold back, stay strong, I am with you. It reminds me of Psalm 23, verse four, that says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We like to imagine what that valley is. Well, imagine some of the deepest valleys that you've been on. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Man, that is a hard statement, isn't it? It is hard as a Christian to understand that in its fullest. I think this just gives us a glimpse of it. These people that were enduring great suffering, God says, stay strong. Stay strong. Do not fear what may come your way. And I want to encourage you with this this morning. Do not fear what is ahead. Do not fear the suffering that is in your life right now. Do not fear what may come. I understand when we go through seasons of great hardship and difficulty, sometimes our tendency is to say, okay, what's next? <laughs> what, what's next? And we begin to fear and we even get in our heads a little bit about how can it get worse? It's probably going to get worse. And all of this, do not fear what is to come. Stay faithful, stay faithful, stay faithful. God is with you. I want you to also see here, and this is the great part about it, is that God will reward those who overcome. God will reward those who overcome. Look again at the second part of verse 10 and then into verse number 11. He says, be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. That is a key phrase right there. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. So here he says that he's going to give the crown of life to those that are faithful 
until death. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to die from the persecution, but it's the idea of a lifetime of faithfulness and you'll receive the crown of life. Now, just like most Roman controlled cities, Smyrna would have understood this idea of a crown probably more than we understand it today. When we think of a crown, we think of a king or a queen, you know, some big massive gold thing with jewels in it. But to the people of Smyrna, they would have understood it as the crown or the winner's crown from an athletic event, a race or, or some other athletic event. And what that crown typically was, was a crown of laurel leaves that was woven together. And uh, did you like that? That was my weaving together action right there. And it was placed on the person's head. Now, uh, for, for us, we think, okay, great, uh, leaves. Okay, even if they dipped it in gold, all right, it's just still leaves inside and it's not that big of a deal. But to them and in that culture, it was transformational to your life. It brought fame, it brought wealth, it brought status to you. And Jesus is saying to them, he's saying, I have a crown of life for you. And I want you to know that the crown I have for you that endure, that are faithful till the end, he said, the crown I have for you is not a crown of leaves that's gonna wilt and just uh, rot away. I have a crown of life. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. A crown of life. Now, there's several crowns that are mentioned throughout the New Testament. I won't go through all of them, but you might recognize there's the crown of rejoicing. That is for the person that leads uh, people to Christ. There is the crown of righteousness, uh, which is promised to those who love and are expectant of the appearing of the Lord. But here he says the crown, I'm sorry, the crown of righteousness to those who love the appearing. This one here is the crown of life. And he says to the church, if you are faithful to the end, you will receive the crown of life. As you have enduring persecution and you work through this suffering, some of you may even be martyred, but there is a reward waiting for you and it's just around the corner. It will not be long. Now you may recognize the crown of life from James chapter one and verse number 12, where it is also mentioned that it's given for those that endure temptation and personal suffering. He says, blessed is the man that endureth temptation for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now, Here's, here's what we understand about the crown of life. Even though you may not be suffering persecution like the church in Smyrna and the difficulty that they're facing, today many of you are still facing the idea of temptation. I say the idea, the reality of temptation. And you're facing it and temptations we know are gonna come in life. They are hard to resist and we do our very best. If you're like me, you've had moments where there's that temptation that comes and it's very real in your life and you resist it and you pray God's power over it and you say, uh, you know, get thee behind me, Satan, and you uh, pray, uh, pray in scripture and, and the devil is still kind of in your head and he's saying, you need to do this. You deserve this. This is your right. You need to take this. This is your, uh, uh, if you miss out on this opportunity, you know, you're never gonna have it again and, and you've gotta have this thing, but I want you to know that that temptation that comes, it's like the crown of leaves. It's that crown that's just, it can wilt away. It'll rot away. And God's saying, if you can resist that and you can see victory over it, I will give you then this lasting crown of life. It is a reward that awaits those that resist temptation as well as those that, that persevere during suffering. You know, right now you may not be struggling with a great deal of temptation, but you are dealing with some suffering. In your relationships, maybe you're having some marriage problems or within your extended family, maybe you're having a physical issue right now that you're, you're struggling with. There's financial problems that are in your life. Maybe you've recently uh, lost a loved one or you've gotten some bad news uh, from a doctor. Whatever it is that you are suffering in in this moment, it never feels fair. It feels like, why me? Why am I going through this? Why do I have to endure this? And I really believe if Jesus was here today, he would say to you, just endure, just stay faithful, just continue on, 
Follow me, be faithful, and in the end, I will reward you with gifts beyond your imagination. Sometimes it's hard to put into reality the heavenly rewards and the heavenly gifts that God promises to us. It's hard to make them a reality in our own heart, in our own life, but the truth is, is throughout scripture, it's emphasized that God will reward those that remain faithful. I know probably some of you are thinking, well, is it even worth it? (laughs) How good is this crown? (laughs) Here's the thing. Those that receive the crowns, we will one day be able to take those and we will lay those at the feet of our savior in in an expression of worship. And I know from my own personal opinion (laughs) and my own desire is that I really want to be able to worship the Lord in that way. I wanna be able to worship God. I wanna be able to lay those down at his feet. The section closes in verse number 11. He says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Well, what is the the second death? What is the second death? Well, it means spending eternity separated from God in, of course, what scripture calls hell. And that is a place of complete separation from God. Now, here's what I want to lock down for us here. He's talking about the second death. Well, what that's talking about is that the non-believer, those that do not know Christ, they actually die twice, while the believer only dies once. You say, what are you talking about, pastor? Well, here's, here's how it goes. For the non-believer, for those that do not know Christ as their savior, uh, life on this earth without Christ is like living part of your death. <laughs> Paul even said in Ephesians, he said, you are dead in your trespasses and your sins. And so those that are outside of Christ live right now, they're living in a state of spiritual death. And then as they die physically, there is the eternal death, that eternal separation from God. See, when you don't know the Lord and people who don't know the Lord, what do they do? They spend their time chasing everything that this world has to offer because for them, this world is as good as it's ever going to get for them. Uh, You know, often we read about celebrities, don't we, who take their own lives. And it's such a sad thing, whether they're uh, a musician or an actor or someone with fame and, and they have everything that the world has to offer them and yet they still take their own life. And the question is always why? Why would they do this at a young age or even elderly? Why would they do this? They seem to have everything. And the reason is, is because everything this world has to offer is dead and it is empty outside of salvation in Jesus Christ. And if you are not saved, if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will die twice. You will experience the deadness and the emptiness of this life. And then after you die, you will face then that second death, that eternal separation from God. But here's the thing, for the non-believer, this is as good as it's going to get. And it's terrible here. But for the Christian, this earth with all of its troubles and all of its woes, and all of its difficulties, this earth is the worst that is going to be for us. The best is still yet to come. If we are believers in Christ, we will only die once. There is that physical death, yes, but then we will live forever. D.L. Moody said it this way. He said, he who is born once will die twice. He who is born twice will die once. Of course, he's speaking about being born again and how that physical death is all that we have to experience because we'll have life eternal with God in heaven. I'll tell you what, the second option is better, isn't it? (laughs) It is far better. It's better now and it's better in eternity. 
You know, as I read about the church in Smyrna and I read about all that they went through and the challenges and the, the difficulties that they went through, as I read and I spent time this week reading actual accounts of, uh, of recent in the, just the last 10 years or so, persecutions that have taken place and people that are suffering for the Lord. I think of my own life and I think of how easy we have it today. And I did ask myself the question, as I hope that you will today, how would I respond when persecution comes? It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When persecution comes, how are you going to respond? Will you stand? Will you be like the church in Smyrna and continue on, even if it means losing everything that you have? Will you stand? Will you follow Christ? I really do believe when that time comes, God will come alongside of us and he'll encourage us to don't fear. He'll say, don't fear those things which will suffer. Be faithful, be faithful unto death. You know, Christian, we need to live outside of the, the realm that we live in right now. As believers, we are to be heavenly minded. And I think sometimes we become so earthly focused and we become so locked in on where we are that we do forget that there is a reward waiting for us. There is a perfect heaven waiting. And this life that we are in is the worst that it's gonna get. There is so much better to come. And we can thank and we can praise God for that. Smyrna was a persecuted church, but I want you to remember they were not abandoned. They were not abandoned. They were persecuted but God did not leave them behind. And so um, we can be reminded today and be encouraged by them that as God was with them, so God is with you today. God has not abandoned you. You may be going through suffering. You may be struggling, but God has not abandoned you. He was walking with you. He is there in the suffering. The question is, is will you trust him? That church was an amazing church that endured such a great way. I wanna share a quick story in closing with you. And as a story is about the pastor of the church in Smyrna. Now we have this from extra biblical sources that give us this information, but we understand the pastor at this time was a man by the name of Polycarp. And he would have more than likely been the one that would have received this letter that had been sent to him, written by John the apostle's own hand. Several years later after this, the Jews, of course, were all about breaking down the church there in, in Smyrna. And so they hatched a plan to see the pastor at the time, Polycarp, taken out. Now, he was a leader among all of the Christians in the city. Many people uh, knew about him. And it was during one of the pagan festival days that uh, as the crowd was kind of uh, riding up a bit, they were drinking and excitable, that someone uh, called out and said that it's time basically to take out Polycarp. The crowds began to cry out. The story goes that this is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of the gods. This is what the crowd is saying, who teaches many neither to offer sacrifices nor to worship. And he was accused of that. You are the one who's trying to keep people from worshiping uh, the Roman empire. He was then taken into a chariot by the local govern governor and his son. And along the way, as they headed in towards the amphitheater, it was told, and they said to him, you need to recant, you need to... Uh, uh, um, claim that Caesar is Lord. And he was given that choice to say Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord, but he refused to say that Caesar was Lord. The governor urged him and he said, I want you to swear. He says, and I will set you at liberty, reproach Christ, and I will let you go. Polycarp answered, this is probably one of the most famous affirmations of Christ that we see in church history. He said this, 80 and six years have I served Christ. And he has never done me wrong. 
How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He said, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour. And after a while it's extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. He says, why are you waiting? Bring what you're going to bring. Soon the crowds that were led by the Jews, interestingly enough, on their Sabbath day, they all of a sudden were willing to break the Sabbath for this, began to bring wood and they tied him. They actually, uh, normally they would nail them to a post while they set them on fire. He said that he would simply stand there and he did. He was tied, had his hands tied only. And they brought the wood and they began to uh, set it on fire. And it says in the flames, he prayed aloud for all to hear there in that crowd. He said, I thank you, O God, that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I might receive a portion in the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ. This was one of the believers there at Smyrna who willingly gave his life. And as he prayed there, he said, God, he considered himself, uh, he considered himself blessed to be able to suffer, to be a martyr for Christ's sake. What a powerful testimony this morning of the persecuted church. The question for us today is when persecution comes, will you stand? In the suffering that you are going through right now, are you trusting Christ? Are you being faithful or are you walking in fear? It may be that you may lose more. It may mean that more suffering is coming, but we have something to look forward to. We have heaven to look forward to. This is as bad as it's gonna get here in this life and we can look forward to life with Christ. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.